you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. LAS Studios. Hi, K-pop dreaming listeners. This is Taylor Kaufman from LA Studios. Recently, LAist 89.3 presented a live event for the book launch of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital, featuring a conversation between the book's author, Elise Hugh, and NPR's All Things Considered host, Elsa Chang. The popularity of Korean beauty products has spread globally, just like K-pop. And we thought you might enjoy this conversation on the rise of K-beauty, not only as an industry, but as a global beauty standard. Here's an edited excerpt of the conversation. Enjoy. So I am so excited to have this night with my very good friend, Elise, because I have watched you write this book during the pandemic while we were all juggling so much madness. And she was homeschooling like three girls. And when I was reading this book, I was just like, how did she get all of this done? Because I watched from the outside and I was so impressed. Um, So I'm very excited to talk about this book. But before I get to to the actual book, I want to explain how Elise and I even know each other. So Elise and I, obviously, we're both from NPR. And we started reaching out to each other because of a thing that would happen. We would constantly get mistaken for each other. (laughs) It turns out that there are some people at NPR who cannot tell Asian woman faces apart. People would go up to Elise and congratulate her on stories about Congress that I did, and they would come up to me, oh my God, when Elise made the Seoul bureau chief job, when she was gonna open up the, the bureau in Seoul, I got emails from people inside NPR congratulating me on my move to Korea. And I never got them, so I missed all those congratulations. (laughs) I should have just been 40. And I hadn't known Elise that well, but then we slowly started reaching out to each other. Is this happening to you too? And she was getting the flip side of this experience. And then finally, at one point, Elise just puts a sign on her desk in her cubicle with a picture of me and a picture of her and an arrow pointing, I am not her. We're like, this is Elise, this is Elsa. (laughs) Exactly. But our friendship was born that way. Our friendship was born. Just, it takes just, you know, nothing like a little racial insensitivity to forge a friendship. But I'm so glad. It bonds you for life. It does. It really does. Um, but in so many ways, that experience, it, 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 I kept like conjuring it back into my mind as I was reading this book because, you know, we joke about how some people can't tell Asian faces apart. And this is a book about how there was sort, there has been culturally this imposed homogeneity among Asian women faces, particularly in Korean society. And we're going to talk about the standards that continually have perpetuated that. But I guess my first question for you, Elise, is of all the topics that you could have written your very first book about, tell me why you landed on Asian beauty standards. I wrote this book about beauty because it didn't exist, and I wished it would have existed when I went to Seoul. When 
I before I got the Seoul posting, I had never spent any time in Korea. I'd never even done a layover at the Incheon Airport, and. I wanted to read up and understand the history and the relationship between South Korea and its neighbors and what was happening in the business world and culture and politically. And there were lots of books on that. But what was really stunning to me when I got there was just the gender disparity mm-hmm. and how different it felt to be a woman occupying space in Korea versus a man. And I felt like my place was constantly having to be earned versus the the place of men in society and the male journalists mm-hmm. where they were just already in a club and their place was assumed. And I really noticed this, especially as a bureau chief, because the rest of the bureau chiefs tended to be white men and a lot of British white guys. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then they would get invited to all the clubby type things and at like the dinners at the ambassador's houses. And I just wouldn't. I would constantly get excluded. And then when I tried to cover kind of national security type topics or politics, you know, harder topics, Mm -hmm. and I would have to get into the Ministry of Defense. I was mansplained constantly. The Korean sources would ask me, like, well, where is your bureau chief? Where is your boss? And I'd have to explain, no, I am the boss. And they just, it didn't compute. It was like, no, the person who's in charge. Right, right, right. right, No, I understand what boss means. That's still me, (laughs) still me. But then, numero uno right here. And so I just, there was a lot of that. And um, this was just like my daily experience, and I didn't think there was a book in it. I never really reported on it. So it wasn't until I got home, and there were all these ingredients of that experience, and then my life experience, too, because as it as I reveal in the book, and I never really talk about, I was a JCPenney model in my teen years. Oh, yes. I have seen the photos. Yeah, <laughs> there used to be these things called catalogs, and they were like 900 pages. And I've been in many of those, advertising various betting you know, sets and, and cardigan sets and all that. So anyway, so this was, there was life experience, I think, that informed how I felt when I was in a very gendered place and a place that where I argue is one of the most extreme beauty cultures in the world. Um, And I wanted to kind of tie that all together, and I wish that somebody had written it, and I actually asked my Korean um, producers, hey, can you find me this book so that I can read the Korean one and then get a translation because I would like to read about all these issues, you know, feminism and gender inequality and the beauty culture in South Korea and, you know, and they're like, the rise of, rise of Korean visual culture, <laughs> K-pop, K-film, K-drama, and, and how that's tied into K-beauty. And th- they were like, okay, there's a book on this. And then there's a book on this. And then they, there were s- mm, these but subtopics. Not the integration but not something threads. that was sort of wide-ranging and sweeping and kind of tied all these things together. So right. I ended up just having to do it. One of the first things you notice as you're looking at the ads and the billboards are these larger-than-life images of a certain look. You call it variations on a prototype. Yeah. What is this prototype? Describe it. Put in words. Sure. It's the long, luxurious hair. It's the porcelain white skin. It's big, bright eyes. Um, a perfect, often kind of chiseled-looking nose. And then a feminine jawline, which in Korea is called the V-line. And sometimes when you see K-pop artists pose, they actually put a V like this <laughs> to emphasize the V of your jaw, if you've seen that particular <laughs> selfie pose. Um, and then a thinness standard that was really rather alarming to yes. me. Um, I ended up learning that 
the standard weight for women should be around 50 kilograms, which is 110 pounds or less. And we're talking about women 5'3 to 5'6. Right, right. I mean, I haven't weighed 110 pounds since, (laughs) I think, seventh grade. And, and, (laughs) And in Korea, it's actually a problem if you don't because there's something called free size. And free size is the one size of clothing that's available at boutiques. And free size, as we name a chapter, free size isn't free. Free size is a U.S. size too. And so I was very, I was made very aware of my largeness. Um, I, first, I couldn't buy clothes. But also, like, shopkeepers would actually yell large size, large size to me <laughs> size. when I was walking up and down the street to indicate that they sold clothes <laughs> for this giant body of mine. <laughs> So I, I felt the fat phobia. Yeah. And um, again, this was part of my daily experience mm-hmm. and not something that was a journalistic pursuit or a journalistic focus until now. After the break, the economics of beauty. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. I want to get into the economics piece because I was so amazed. I knew that the K-beauty industry was huge. But when I read your book, I learned just how colossal it was. And the speed with which products are just spit into the marketplace was astonishing. I mean, it's globally unmatched, right? In terms of K-beauty products. In terms of R&D, yes. In terms of R&D, it is unmatched. I think Korean beauty companies... Don't catch me lying, but I believe the stat is spend 67% of their budgets all on R&D and aggressive market testing in order to put products to market faster and then retire the ones that don't work faster. And so you're seeing new things on the shelves and products go away much faster than you would from Estee Lauder or L'Oreal and some other some other giants. But just within the last few years, so since I've moved back in 2018, South Korea has become the, th- the world's third largest cosmetics exporter. It's now exporting a higher volume of cosmetics than smartphones. And so if you remember, you know, when I went to Seoul in 2015, I remember thinking of South Korean exports as LG TVs or Hyundai and um, Kia cars and then Samsung, right? Samsung phones. And now K-beauty products have surpassed that. And it's largely underreported. But it's a huge driver of revenue to the country. Exactly. And that was another fascinating piece that a lot of the ubiquity of the K-beauty industry globally has been in large part thanks to the South Korean government. It's part of the cultural export to boost their own economy. It's not just K-beauty. It's K-pop. That's right. Soap operas. 
It's part of the Hallyu wave. So the Hallyu wave is the term that's used to describe the Korean wave, which includes K-pop, K-drama, K-film, K-food, entertainment, other kinds of entertainment like gaming and animation. But K-beauty has really ridden that wave because so much of K-culture, K-pop and K-film and K-drama especially, is visual. And so you're exporting all these images of beautiful Koreans, which then makes the celebrities and the idols more popular, and then their looks and how they sort of achieve those looks more popular. And K-beauty is not just products. It's also lots of high-tech lights and wands. And so um, there's this Iron Man-looking helmet, basically, mask that you can wear. That's an LED mask that you've probably seen in... It's, you know, it's supposed to like smoothen, smoothen and brighten your skin, oh, God. whatever it is, you know, like, but, but it's worn on K-dramas, <laughs> like as product placement, like right. suddenly some, right. the, some, suddenly the star is just suddenly like, just like, oh, I'm going to, it, it has nothing on. to do with the plot. It's like, <laughs> let me just put on this Iron Man mask for the night. And so all of these things are kind of tied together. It's part of exporting the image, but not just exporting the image and products and looks, but also these newfangled technologies and inventions for medical aesthetics to improve your look. So fascinating. Okay, so that gets me right to skin. We're going to go to through different body parts, but skin, <laughs> skin is like queen. Skin is foundation of everything, I feel like, in, in terms of K-beauty. And what was fascinating to read about skin in your book is there is this fundamental desire for truly unblemished skin Um, There was this quote here from a woman, Christine Chang, who co-founded a Korean beauty brand, and she explains the look of glowy skin. Glowy skin is like the look you want these days, and this is how she describes it. Quote, it's when your skin is so healthy, even-toned, and plumped with hydration that it is almost translucent, like a shard of glass. At least, I literally wrote, (laughs) holy crap, in the margin (laughs) of my book, because I was like, that's so impossible. And that yet is the standard. Yeah, it almost looks slick. You know, but I want to look wet. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) because it's youthful, right? And the idea is that it helps you look younger because of the four beauty pillars, there's basically four global beauty pillars. They are firmness, thinness, smoothness, and youth. And thinness and youth are quite connected to one another. And smoothness and youth also are. And Glowy skin sort of follows that idea that it kind of helps you reach at least two out of four of the pillars. Um, But this point that you make, like, God, this sounds impossible and it seems like a lot of work, is exactly a theme that runs across the book, which is that the labor, the aesthetic labor that we do on our bodies, whether it's primping or plucking or waxing or dyeing or regimenting our bodies by fasting, whatever it is, that is labor, And I think that so often we don't notice it or we passively participate in it or it's sold to us as wellness. And yet we're spending a lot of money and time and energy on it. And so it's labor that not only that we don't just do for free, but we pay to do. I mean, I got sucked into it because there was this part where you talk about Charlotte Cho's 10 step skincare routine. And this is done twice a day, right? 
I'm about to tell you, I didn't even know there was such a thing as double cleansing until I read your book. And then I went out and I got oil cleanser because at first I was like, no, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to double cleanse my face. But then you it kept, helps take the makeup off. It better. is. Now, so now I've added another step. And I believe me, I have a lot of steps already in my regimen. Um, <laughs> so thanks, Elise. Now I do oil cleanser before the soap cleanser and then before the toner, before the serums, before the moisturizer. It's et so funny because one of the one of the most <laughs> common just, reactions that I've gotten to the book is something like, I've read the book and I get that the whole message is that is rest. And that we should <laughs> freedom just yeah don't we let should it inhibit who you are exactly we should break the link link between appearance and worthiness that there is all kinds of beauty that is spiritual and character driven and it's way too focused on external beauty now and yet I couldn't resist the lure yes. of that thing you mentioned yeah and chapter three can I just say Elise gave me a thank you present backstage that is a K beauty beauty product right right that's true. <laughs> nod to something and so it's like capitalism absorb has exactly. an amazing power to absorb its own critiques i also thought this was super fascinating the unblemished look goes all the way back to confucianism and it i sure had does. no idea what is the connection between confucianism and unblemished clear smooth skin it was about class, and just as beauty is a performance of class and gets you into certain doors today, it was certainly a performance of class in a really strict and rigid class hierarchy. And so those who had the whitest, fairest, smoothest skin were also the richest. Mm -hmm. And so I write a lot about the history of the whiteness standard because a lot of the whiteness standard, of course, across the world we've seen is a product of colonialism and those attitudes. But in Asia, the whiteness standard kind of predates colonialism even and goes back to dynastic times because of Asian class hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of instances like that in the book where you know, we have these assumptions that Asians in Asia want to look white. This is fascinating because I had always thought that. Like the double eyelid, which yeah. we're about to – I always thought we like to have double eyelids because it – opens up our eyes. And I always thought the desire was so we could look more Western. Well, according to the Western foreign correspondents. Right. right? No, exactly. <laughs> but you, you talked to scholars, historians who said, actually, not necessarily. Yeah, because if you think about it, um, not, it's not that Asians monolithically don't have double eyelids. Actually, half of all Asians are born with double eyelids. So why couldn't you want to actually look like your mom or the right. local celebrities. But yeah. this is a tangled knot because the whole history of double eyelid surgery is really fascinating and is kind of rooted in this idea of Orientalism because the second person who claims to have invented it, it was invented twice, basically. It was first invented by a Japanese surgeon in 1895. But then most people trace the origin of the double eyelid surgery to a U.S. Marine surgeon that who was my posted mind. at Yongsan, which is the base in Seoul. And he was posted there after the Korean War. And he was really there to work on um, fixing cleft palates for the most part. And this is to say nothing of how cosmetic surgery as a practice came out of war. So we do have to remember the geopolitical influences 100%. of everything. So it is a quite tangled knot. But David Millard, who is this marine surgeon, was originally working on sex workers or operating for free on sex workers who were servicing the U.S. military. And he, was, he claims to have invented the double eyelid surgery in the 50s for the male gaze, for the like, U.S. male gaze. And so at the time, 
the the attitudes there were rather complicated. Yeah. But by yeah. now it's evolved to a very specific local Asian standard. I mean, it took such a hold at, for me at such an early age. I I was born with very like you have a double eyelid. I do now, but when I was younger, swear to God, I didn't have double eyelids. Every once in a while, I would wake up in the morning and one eyelid might be folded. So I used to stare at myself from the mirror when I was little, and I used to take the end of a tweezer and just stick it into mm. my eye socket to try to force my lid to fold, and I would just hold it in place, just hoping my skin would take, like the fold would take. And sometimes it would stay for a little bit, but I, I, I just remember that so vividly, like, please, let me have a double eyelid. Mm. And then as I grew older, I, I, I have like, you know, it's, it's, you have really distinct double eyelids. It depends, on, yeah, it's yeah. like the spacing. You, exactly. And when you get them surgically made, you can choose. You can oh my god! I just I just discovered this year before going to the Oscars that there's eyelid tape. You can literally yes. tape your eyelid into a double. I was going to say you didn't need to do that. See now I know I'm selling beauty products that I'm <laughs> fundamentally against, but you didn't need to use the tweezers because there's eyelid tape for that. I my know friend. exactly, but I don't know how to apply it. I'd have to hire someone. But this all brings me to like this larger issue of plastic surgery in Korean society, which. Also, I found fascinating. Can you just tell people how incredibly packed with plastic surgeons Gangnam, am I saying it right? Yeah. Is it Gangnam or Gangnam? Gangnam. Some, okay. Mm-hmm. This is a very wealthy district in Seoul. How packed with plastic surgeons is that one district in Seoul? It is the most mature plastic surgery market in the world. I was just reading a Harvard Medical Review study this week that indicated 25% of all cosmetic surgeries performed in the world today are performed in South Korea. That's insane. Highest um, per capita number of plastic surgeons in the world. No other country comes close. More than Brazil, four times more than the United States. There is a surgery for resting bitch face. Yes, they invented that. They invented that. I mean, to correct it, not to impose it. (laughs) (laughs) Clarification. I was amazed. Yeah, like, puts your face in a permanent (laughs) smile. Even when you're relaxed. Yes. Yes, There is, there is... There is no problem, no perceived problem with your appearance that Seoul and this district can't fix. One important point to make is that because of the glutted market, the price points are much lower, which then leads a lot of folks to ask, why not change your face? Why not change your body? The fix is available for the perceived problem, and it's not out of reach. You also made the argument or the observation that why wouldn't you avail yourself of these these procedures, these products to look different because you can therefore access, for a lot of these women in Korea, they can access a different class in society. They can access a certain marriage that they otherwise maybe wouldn't have access to. Like why wouldn't you, in a way what you were saying is that the beauty industry and these beauty standards provide almost a democratization opportunity. You can actually get to the next level if you work on your appearance. Yeah, it's economically rational for a lot of South Korean women to do the work of changing their appearance because your professional life sort of demands it. It's a place where headshots were required on resumes. And your personal life, there's a lot of pressure around it because, you know, when you go to 
matchmaking sites or matchmaking agencies, which is a, a way a lot of Korean people meet. They rank you <laughs> based on your looks. You know, they use the term specs in the way that we use specs for gadgets. They use specs on your appearance, like your bra size and your height and your weight and your certain ego, your cuteness mm-hmm. is all ranked. They frame your appearance, and this happens in the United States too, as a matter of personal responsibility. Exactly. So it's like, if you can change your appearance to look better and get ahead, why wouldn't you? Right. It's it just another form of personal striving, self-improvement. Exactly. It's not vanity. And my issue with that is, and we're seeing the debates now in the United States with regard to Ozempic. Ozempic is the diabetes drug that so many celebs are, celebs are supposedly using off-label in order to lose weight, the Kardashian sisters. And, and if it is a miracle drug where it, it can help people lose weight, then one of the arguments is like, well, if nobody has, nobody has to exist in a large body or be fat, then why not? Why not make everybody skinny? But the answer, my response to that is just as the proper response to racism is not to make everyone white <laughs> and the proper response to homophobia is not to make everyone straight, then the proper response to fat phobia, to lookism, appearance-based discrimination, is right. not to make everybody look exactly the same. Exactly. Because that is not true of the human experience and it's not true of nature and we should actually be opening the lens of society and and be able to show up as we are because nobody is going to ever be able to achieve the perfect standard unless you are really, really, really rich, I suppose. <laughs> and so if you're marginalizing so, so, ma- many so many people, but you're keeping the entire system anxious and exhausted trying to keep up and stay on this hamster wheel of trying to chase appearance standards. And then for any underclasses, they're aspirationally trying to reach it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an awful inequality too. So it's no way to be. A hundred percent. This is the extension of why it's problematic to situate looks as a matter of personal responsibility, because then it gets extended to a matter of maternal love if mm-hmm. you don't help your child with their looks. Right. And so this is why so many high school students are gifted cosmetic surgery when they graduate from high school. Um, because you want your child to do well in the same way that you pay for tutoring. You know, everybody goes to cram schools in Korea, the hagwons. And just in the same way that parents will work hard and sacrifice for their kids to go to hagwon, they're also working hard and sacrificing to help their kids improve their looks because it's such an economically competitive and precarious society that it's like, well, we're going to do what it takes. Are there any movements in Asia or in Korea specifically that give you hope that there is real introspection about these beauty standards and some women, even though you point out men are also under their own pressures in Korea, but it is disproportionately something women feel. My final year in Korea was a whirlwind year of diplomacy between North Korea and South Korea and North Korea and the United States because that it started with Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump doing this, my nuclear button is bigger than yours. Rocket man. Yeah. Oh, rocket man. He called him <laughs> rocket man. Nickname for everyone. Uh, of course. Of Every course. despot gets a nickname. And uh, then there was the Pyeongchang, Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, and then the, in, the first inter-Korean summit in years. So Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, and then Kim Jong-un, they met at those blue houses at the border. And then there was the Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump summit in Singapore. And all of this happened in six months. It was a wild whirlwind time. I, I was. And 
All the while, there were the largest women's rights rallies in Korean history. 50,000 women, then 80,000 women, then eventually 90,000 women on the third one took to the streets. And I did not cover a single one. I have no sound. NPR has no sound of them Mm. because I was so busy doing Mm. these national security stories and being off in Singapore. And so I really regretted that because... Feminists in Korea are so brave because they face such personal risk and danger by being feminists. Um, 89% of Korean men surveyed just last year said that they would break up with their girlfriends if they learned they were feminists. It's just even saying that you are one is a radical position to take. And these women not only rallied in person, they also rallied online in a movement called Escape the Corset. So a figurative corset where they cut their hair super short and they stopped wearing makeup and they crushed their compacts and threw threw them in the trash and took video of it. And then they tallied all the time and money they had spent on trying to look that perfect sort of feminine mold that I described at the start of our time together. And then they just didn't want to do it. They didn't do it anymore. Mm. And they kind of, they had a hashtag and this was a big movement kind of following me too in the end of 2017. And many of them remain in South Korea fighting this fight despite getting threatened by their bosses, getting asked by their students. There's elementary school teachers who now don't wear makeup and adorn themselves. And their elementary school students are like, why do you look like that? (laughs) My parents said not to trust you. You know, like these sorts of things because they look like such rogues. They're taking huge risks. But they're in small numbers. And I continue to look to them. And I wrote this book sort of with their voices, hopefully at the center, and um, really want Flawless to be translated into Korean as kind of a tribute to them. When we return, it's time for audience questions. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. interested in any particular observations you might have had for um, males in Korea. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Yes, so there's a whole chapter called Of Marketing and Men (laughs) because men are now getting subsumed by this pressure, the lookist pressure in South Korean society. You see it, especially with regard to skincare, Roughly 13% of all skincare products for men in the world are consumed by South Korean men, which is huge because the population is like 50 million and can fit in the space between Los Angeles and San Francisco. So South Korean men are not only following trends, they're also leading trends. Um, The male perm, sort of the success perm, is now 
crossing over and we're seeing that in the United States more and more and that's led by K-pop stars and K-drama stars. Hi, first of all, I love the sound of both of your voices. It makes oh. me just feel like, oh. I'm, you. like I'm in my car and listening. <laughs> and it's Elsa Chang, of course. <laughs> you know, thank you. So thank you both. And uh, this is a great talk. I'm wondering about the uh, statistics maybe of suicide um, and maybe the, the, what you found to be maybe the relationship of suicide attempts, suicidal ideations in Korean women, um, and compare that to American women who are getting less um, uh, surgery, but under the same pressures. Mm. Korean young people, I can't remember the age cutoff. I think it's like 18 to 30, maybe 15 to 30. And then Korean old people, like 65 and up, have the highest rate of suicide in the developed world. So in the 27 countries that are part of the OECD. So young people and old people. And the explanations of this really vary, but the suicide numbers started going up after the 1997 Asian financial crisis in South Korea where Korea went bankrupt, and then afterwards there was this increasing economic pressure across the system, across society, and that led to really high pressure on education and the nine-hour tests that Koreans have to take in order to get into college. The Korean SAT is called the Sunung, and um, they shut down Korean airspace. <laughs> Uh, that day so that no planes will disturb students who are taking the test because it is so high stakes. Right, right, and so the right. high stakes, the all work, no play, mm -hmm. those are factors that are involved. And um, yeah, this is the second night in a, in a row that I've gotten that question. So it, it's, it's obviously there's no like easy explanation for why these numbers are so high, but mm -hmm. I can report them. Right. Another distinct statistic, did you also say that Korean women are the skinniest women? In the developed world as well. That's so blue. just as the blue. rest of demographics, so men, women from all 27 of the developed countries that are part of the OECD have seen BMI go up. There's one group, one demographic that has seen BMI go down, and that's Korean women between the ages of 18 and 35. Mm -hmm. In the decade after the 1997 financial crisis, underweight women percentage of underweight women rose 60%. Did you interview anyone, whether within the industry or not, who dismiss these concerns, that think that this focus on mm. beauty and perfection is only good and good question. there's not anything psychologically or culturally damaging? When I tried to talk to industry folks about kind of more complicated implications, they would focus on how great it is for the Korean economy. So they would say, you know, like, sure, lookism is bad, and there's a lot of pressure on all of us to look good, and every time I see anybody, the first comments they make are about my appearance, like, why are you wearing glasses, or whatever it is. But then they'd say, but you could also see it as excellent for innovation because we're constantly coming up with new ways. Yeah. So there is this sense of like the market above all costs. Was there a specific mm -hmm. moment or even surgery or experience that you saw in your early time in South Korea that really made you say, wow, these stringent standards are a little bit elevated compared to even the neighboring areas. Baby facial, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> it was the Botox for the body parts. So we're all used to Botox for like frown line and forehead creases because it paralyzes the muscle, right? But um, 
In South Korea, the second most popular place to get Botox are your trap muscles, uh, trapezius muscles, because if you get rid of that muscle or you kind of like make it not as prominent, it's supposed to elongate your neck. Oh my God. So it's supposed to make your neck look longer. And then the third most popular place to get Botox are your calves. That blew me so away. So that your calf yes. was skinnier to make your legs look longer. So for a long time, I had been hearing that Blackpink and Girls' Generation, these K-pop idol bands. groups, mm. um, were getting Botox injections in their legs. And it turns out that's a common practice <laughs> to make your legs look longer. And there's a great section on legs, because, and we can't get to it here, but legs have really become a showpiece item, kind of a soft power flex for South Korea, a way to show, like, because they're so prominent in K-pop um, videos and formations that now they're, they're a way to project Korea's um, kind of cultural exports to the rest of the world in a really prominent way. It's amazing that they want flabby calves. Skinny! It, skinny! Not flabby, skinny. Relaxed and gooey. Um, thank you so much. Thank you all. Elise Hu, her new book is flawless. Elsa Everyone Chang. should read it. Everyone should read it. The Flawless Live event was produced by the LAist events team, including producer Rebecca Stummy, technical director Tony Federico, audience services and events manager Kristen Payne, events coordinator Kristen Ranger, intern Clark Crane, and executive director John Cohn. The conversation was edited for podcast by me, Taylor Kaufman. Parker McDaniels is our mix engineer. Original music by Stephen Tran. Thanks to the team at LAS Studios, including production coordinator Jens Campbell and senior producer Fiona Ng. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. LAist Studios. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.